If you would take your Bibles this morning to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 this morning will be in the first two verses. While you're turning there, this morning Paul is continuing the theme of unity. As we looked at last week, he calls the church in Philippi to only let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Living in unity with one another, striving side by side, standing firm in one spirit, that they would continue to see in the midst of suffering, in the midst of life, the opportunity to grow unified as a church. And the conjunction that begins chapter 2, verse 1, shows a close relationship with that preceding passage we looked at last week. As we see the exhortation to unity is continuing to be a theme Paul's going to stand on as a concrete expression of living worthy of the gospel. Because when we see a daunting phrase like that, live worthy of the gospel, we want to understand We want to know and have confidence. What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us. He told us last week in the passage we looked at, and he'll tell us here this week and next week as we continue in Philippians chapter 2, looking at passages on unity from different camera angles, seeing in different ways through suffering, through the regular means of grace, through the gospel, and how we view one another. And also how we continue to constantly, in every way, not putting our own needs above the needs of one another, but putting others above ourselves, just as Christ has done for us. And then in a few weeks, we'll go into the greatest passage of this book and maybe of the New Testament, and that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 12, where we see the humiliation of Christ followed by the exaltation of Christ. And what is thought to be an ancient hymn uh, that Paul uses here in this passage, beginning in verse 5 and following down to chapter, uh, verse 12, uh, an excellent passage there uh, that we'll look at here in a few weeks. But this morning, you're there, Philippians chapter 2. Let's stand and read verses 1 and 2 together in the honor of God's Word. Paul's letter to the Philippian church reads this, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Moms and dads, we can be really good as parents with if-then statements. We can use these statements often with our kids. If you pick up all your toys, then you can have a snack. If you do all your chores, then you can go play outside. And being as it is Mother's Day, dads might be prone to say something like this on a day such as it is. If you care at all for your mother then you will try to show it to her by not fighting with one another. My mom would always tell us that. We'd ask her what she wanted for Mother's Day. I don't want you to buy me anything. I just wish my boys would not fight. Well, mom, that's not happening, so tell us. Give us some ideas. (laughs) 
Now we see some of these if-then statements are just straight bribes, right? Dangling the carrot out there to motivate our children to obey. It doesn't only work with children, they work with employees and other people as well. But other times the if-then statement contains not a carrot dangling out there to motivate you, but a stick that comes behind you to motivate in another way. If you're not home by 10 p.m., then you're grounded for a month. If you ever cheer for Washington State University and the Cougars, you will be kicked out of this family and your inheritance given to the dog. Anybody ever had that one said to you? (laughs) Sometimes the if-then statement is implied. Your parent does not actually say if-then but merely they say, be home by 10. And you know this to mean, if you are home by 10, then you will not come home to your dad sitting in the living room, tapping his chair, thinking of the lecture he's about to deliver to you, and your mother crying, wondering where you've been and if you're dead in a ditch somewhere. You know this. So if you're home by 10 and your mind is, then I saved myself a whole lot of hassle when I get home. They didn't say all that. All they said was if, then, but you knew it was all implied. But the if-then phrase can be so helpful. It gives you what is being asked of you, and then what the results or the consequences or the rewards of doing it would be. We find if-then statements in the Bible all over the place. Genesis chapter 4, in the beginning, if you do well, will you not be accepted, God says? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. If you do well, then this will happen. Exodus chapter 19. And the law, the law is full of if-then statements. If you obey, then this will happen. Now indeed, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. If you obey, then you shall be. Second Chronicles chapter 4, one of the most famous. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If then you have been raised, then seek the things that are above. The NIV translates Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 as, since then you have been raised. Because for the Christian who's reading it, and the audience that Paul was writing to in Colossae, it is already true. You have been raised. So since you have been raised... Seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It allows the reader to be able to immediately make application, not wondering if I've been raised, but since you, reader, have been raised. In our text for this morning that we just read, Paul gave an if-then statement. You might have picked up on it. But in fact, he gives four if statements to the one-then statement. He says this, and it's seen more obviously in the Greek as we uh, read it. We see the ifs that are there, but the New Testament assumes them. But it's helpful for us to read them. If 
there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any participation in the Spirit, if there is any affection and sympathy, if, if, four times, then fulfill my joy. This morning, we will see how when we view the glories of those if statements and turn them into since, like the NIV does with Colossians 3.1, how when we view these statements in all their glorious splendor, we will be greatly affected in the way we interact with one another. And that is Paul's aim. So first, let us look at those four if statements and see the universal benefits of the gospel. This morning, that's our first point. We'll have three of them, but the universal benefits of the gospel. He begins, as I mentioned, with compounding if clauses. Uh, They can all be read uh, not just as if, but since. Because when we read those, we automatically see that Paul is making some rhetorical statements. Let me read them. And I almost ask him as a question. If there is any encouragement in Christ, well, church, is there? Is there any encouragement at all that you can think of that comes through the person of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, right? If there is any encouragement in Christ, of course there is, Paul. Well, if there is any comfort from love, let's ask it this way. Are you at all, do you feel at all comforted? Any sense at all of comfort when you know that you are loved by someone? Well, even just a human being in their love, when you're assured of it, is wonderfully comforting. But to know that the God of the universe that created us, that made us and has redeemed us, knowing all that we have done, when we know for sure He loves us, what incredible and eternal comfort that brings to us. So if there is any comfort from love, of course there is, we could answer. If there is any participation in the Spirit, this word might seem better to be fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. We only point that out because it's come up several times already in chapter 1. If there is any fellowship in the Spirit, and that Spirit there that is given in the New Testament, or sorry, in your English is capitalized. If there is any participation or fellowship with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Spirit that resides in us as believers, the Holy Spirit who indwells us now, who lives within us and encourages us, helps us to understand the Scriptures, the one who guides us, who regenerated us, the one who opens our eyes to the gospel, the one who reveals our sin to us and our need to repent. Absolutely, there is fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Of course there is, Paul. And is there any affection and sympathy or tender mercy and compassion? Well, yeah, when we begin to look at all these gospel truths, these benefits of the gospel, for sure, no doubt, there is affection and sympathy that is oozing, overflowing onto us as God's people who have benefited from the gospel. So because all of those statements are true, this fourfold appeal and by use of these rhetorical devices in this way of sort of asking questions if there is any 
It's sort of a strange way to write, but it, it sort of gathers the point for us of, well, of course. I felt like when I was first reading it, when we were all standing, and we read that first line, there was almost a chuckle. Of course there's encouragement in Christ. Why would he ask the question? Why would he write it this way? Well, to do just that for us, to be something that we know that all of a sudden comes back and absolutely there is encouragement in the person of Christ. Think of Ephesians chapter 1, just a few pages uh, to the left in your Bible if you want to turn there. But Ephesians chapter 1 gives us some of the encouragement that we find in the person and work of Jesus Ephesians chapter 1 and beginning in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he blessed us in the beloved. In Christ, in God, we have redemption through his blood. He continues on through several verses, seeing all that we have obtained because of the work of Christ on our behalf and the benefits that come through the gospel, or as Paul writes in Ephesians 1, the glorious grace of God. There was incredible encouragement in Christ. And you noticed in that passage and in many other passages that we could look at in the New Testament how the encouragement in Christ is intertwined with the encouragement that we see in God himself. With some of the things that we'll see, the comfort from love, the fellowship in the spirit, these things intertwine where one ends and the other begins is not clear for the purpose of seeing in all of these statements, not just if clauses uh, that you could uh, put for a rhetorical device, but so that what is clear is coming through of the work of the Trinitarian God on the behalf of his people for a specific reason. And so this morning, these four if statements given to us, one right after another, referring either intentionally or deliberately, explicitly, to the member of the Trinity, or by inference, it's clear that the Trinitarian God is working on our behalf to overwhelm us with the glorious grace of the gospel again and again. And that, that is the basis for how we ought to live. That is what ought to be what consumes or controls or is the filter through which we view the life in which God has us to live. God gives us comfort and consolation in Christ. The expression here is almost equivalent to salvation and the gospel itself. Do you have encouragement in Christ? It would be hard to say the encouragement that you have in Jesus apart from relating the story of how you came to faith or what God did on your behalf. Yeah, I have encouragement in Jesus. If you think specifically at the person of Jesus, well, he came and he took on human flesh that he might go to the cross. He lived perfectly, but he goes to the cross and, and he shouldn't have. But wicked people put him on the cross that he might die. And yet the scriptures were fulfilled in this way, that Jesus would die for our sins and be raised again three days later for our justification. Yeah, when I think about it, there is great encouragement in Jesus. And see how those phrases can be almost one and the same as regarding the work he did on your behalf in salvation. 
There was great encouragement in Christ. There was incredible comfort from love. And this love, while not primarily referring to just brotherly love of Christians to Christian, or the love of Paul for the Philippian church, but to Christ's love. In the few New Testament instances that occur, it appears to denote the comfort granted in this present earthly sphere. What God has given to us here and now in the place that he has us. There is incredible comfort from love over and over again. We see uh, the love of God that is manifested to us. That if you're still in Philippians, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, one chapter later in Ephesians chapter 2, the first couple of verses in that chapter speak of us being dead in our sins. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Verse 2, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, we were all in the same boat, all lost, all by nature, following and doing the exact same things, born into sin and in desperate need of salvation. But God, verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Is there comfort already from love? Yeah, absolutely. With the great love with which he loved us, we already get a sense. It's not fair because we all know how, most of us know how this passage goes on and what it goes on to say, but we're already getting a sense that we're not left in that condition that we were in in those first three verses. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There is incredible comfort from God's love towards his people, from Christ's love towards us sinners. And we know that there is fellowship within the Holy Spirit. We mentioned this in the pastoral prayer for those moms who are believing moms and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The same is true of believing dads and believing children and believing grandparents and believing singles and everyone else who has come to faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit indwells us. He resides within us. And this fellowship that we have with one another is mirrored after this fellowship that we have with the Spirit Himself. It is a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Philippians' knowledge of this indwelling and activity that He is doing in our behalf. One commentator says, fellowship in the Spirit should sound the death knell to all factions and divisive spirits because we are one Spirit. We are baptized into one body. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, but also in Ephesians chapter 4, where we are one in Christ, but we are also one in the Holy Spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. There is one unity that is given in the midst of the work of Christ through the redemption that God provides and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is incredible fellowship we have with the Trinitarian God because of redemption. And lastly, the fourth phrase 
the benefits of the gospel that are universal to all who believe, that Paul writes here to overwhelm us, is any affection and mercies, or we can better say it, any tender mercy and compassion? Do you at all, when you think of the gospel, feel any mercy and compassion towards you? Well, that's exactly what we read in Ephesians chapter 2. The God who is rich in mercy, who loved you with an everlasting love, but a God who is rich in mercy towards you. A God who has a heart of compassion and affection towards you. This word affection is the one that has the, the deepest seed. We've seen it already in Philippians 1. The deepest movement of compassion or expression of affection and tender mercy towards one another here. It is related from the Godhead to us. All of these references given of God working deliberately towards His people. Almost every reference to mercy is attributed to God. And if that is so, then this would make it very explicitly a Trinitarian phraseology. That you have the encouragement in Christ, the fellowship in the Spirit, and affection, mercy of God towards His people. Brothers and sisters, as it begins in Philippians chapter 2, if there is any of this, not only is there just a little bit, that if we pulled out a microscope, we could see. Uh, Yep, I found something. I found a little something here. I think it's a little dust of fellowship in the Spirit. Oh, I've got something over here. What did you find? I have a little bit of love, and that seems comforting to me. You know, Paul's not writing of something that's like really hard to find, but something that is all over Scripture and the work that God has done on our behalf. The fourfold basis of Paul's exhortation going into verse 2 is grounded in divine certainties of what God has already done for you. As Paul's going to, in verse 2, appeal to them for their unity and love towards one another, he does it basing it on their shared comfort and love that has origins in God and not just in themselves, in their own emotions. But in the work that God has done through His Son Jesus, brought about in us by the work of the Spirit, and shared mutually by one another, together. Often we see this, and we saw this several times in Ephesians, and we mentioned this last week, but we are not just brought to faith in Jesus on our own, but we are brought to faith in Jesus together, and we together make up one body. These, the, these four statements are the universal benefits of the gospel to those who believe, and these are meant to be overwhelming, but also usher us into what is to come. And what is to come is this exhortation that Paul gives that comes in a little bit of a strange way. Because as he gives these four statements, if these things are true, then, we would expect him to say, then, excuse me, live like it. Then do this. Then do that. But he doesn't. Notice what he says. Verses 1 through 4 is one sentence. And in this one sentence, here's the verb. Complete my joy. Of all the things to say, all these other things are modifying the verb. Here's the verb, complete my joy. Well, that seems a little narcissistic, doesn't it? That you want all of us to remember these truths of the gospel, these universal benefits of the gospel, and then you're going to exhort us on how to live all so you can have joy. 
Paul's a hedonist. We know this, right? But this seems to be wrong. But notice what Paul is finding joy in. It's not just joy for joy's sake, because I just want to be happy. I want to feel fulfilled in my ministry. I want to be able to look back on my life and see I did something that was worth it, meaningful, based on the fruit that was given. No, that is not the case. But here, Paul is finding joy in brothers and sisters who are continuing to grow and obey and be unified one with another. Now, there's clearly something that's going on in this church for Paul to be harping on unity so strongly. There's joy, no doubt. And often, we mention this all the way back at the very beginning of this study through the book of Philippians, that many will say that the book of Philippians is about joy. Well, it is, but it's so much more than that. What brings Paul joy is not merely joy for joy's sake, but the unity of the church, the growth and unity of you, the church benefiting, bringing him joy. His joy is not wrapped up in something Uh, that is found to be trite or momentary, but in your growth in Christ. All these gospel truths are your reality. So continue to grow in them, be unified in them, and that will bring me great joy. Paul wants them to fill up his cup of joy to the brim. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, and I wasn't planning to go there, But it mentions this relationship to the obedience of God's people to the joy of their leaders. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So obey them, submit to your leaders because of the responsibility that God has placed on them for your soul. But then also continuing on in verse 17, let them, the leaders, do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It would not help you at all, church, to have a leader who is groaning because of having to shepherd and care for a church that in no way brings him joy. And not because you don't do what he wants, but because you're not growing. Your spiritual growth in Christ brings your leaders great joy. Paul is saying that here in Philippians chapter 2, you guys being unified as a church, not even one he's directly over right now as an elder pastor, but you guys being growing and seeing these benefits of the gospel and allowing those to shape how you're unified together in love with one another will bring me great joy. And we know that to be true. And the joy of our spiritual leaders is to the benefit of the body, to the benefit of the body and that they stay longer. They have more zeal in their message. They're encouraged to grow themselves as they see you growing. And God continues to bring them great joy in being able to see the work of the gospel is continuing and furthering in your life and in the lives of others through you. Paul's not wanting possessions from them. He's not wanting the church to get more out of their uh, seeing this universal benefits of the gospel. He's not asking for something else really extraordinary out of them. Here's all of these benefits of the gospel, so go out and change the world for Christ's sake. He doesn't say that. Instead, it is a humble expression of Paul's contentment in the work of the gospel. That as God continues to grow you and unify you as a church, that will bring me great joy. Why? 
because he knows that the gospel is continuing to work in you, and that will bring about fruit in the lives of others. And that will bring about fruit in the lives of other others, and so on and so on. Think back to how you came to faith in Christ. Most likely, we were at an evangelism conference recently, and they had the whole room stand up, four or 500 people in the room. And this is in Portland. They had the whole room stand up, and they said, if your mom was the primary person who brought you to faith in Christ, sit down. I don't know what it was. 90% of the room sat down. And they said, most of the time, moms are the most successful evangelists in the world. Just ones who are with their children more, sharing the gospel with them, living life in front of them, taking every teachable moment sometimes. It doesn't come through flashy evangelism crusades that the gospel has to have here and there every once in a while to keep us on our toes so that we remember to do what we're called to do. No, it's in the normal everyday growth in Christ by remembering the benefits of the gospel. Paul's not giving them something they don't already have in their relationship with Christ already. Imagine, they have everything that they need in the fellowship of the Spirit, in in the work that Christ is doing, the encouragement that Christ is to them, in the mercy they've been shown in God as they pass those things on to others and continue to root themselves in those truths. They don't need to go to a conference. They don't need to have... Uh, an evangelism class to be taught tactics. What they need is to go deeper into the gospel. They need to be themselves grounded in humble contentment, which they here get to see from Paul, but which we know comes ultimately through the work of the Spirit in us. Grounded in humble contentment so that one who could receive anything he wanted from this church points it back to the glory of God and the furtherance of the gospel, not himself. What does he want from them? That they would bring him great joy in being united together as a church. There are four universal blessings, that benefits that come to us in the gospel. In verse 2, there are four exhortations that Paul gives. And the church and the way that they obey these things will bring about great joy for him as he watches them grow. Christ's grace, one author writes, has turned Paul's heart inside out so that his joy is now bound up in seeing others grow more like Jesus. Would that be true for you? That Christ has turned our hearts so inside out that it's no longer thinking only about ourselves and what we have to deal with, what we do, all that I am doing every day and all the struggles that I face, but being able to see others growing in Christ and that be what brings us great joy. Lastly, not only do you see these universal benefits that come by means of the gospel, not only do we see Paul's utter contentment from the gospel, but we see the unifying summons in the gospel. As he states there in verse 2, complete my joy in these ways, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. They seem and sound very similar, don't they? But in every way, in every way possible as a person, physically, in your heart, in your mind, in your emotions, the way that you think, the way that you love, the way that you feel, in all of these ways, be unified as a church. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord in everything that you do. 
being able to see one another in light of the gospel. And seeing your brother or sister in light of the gospel and being unified one with another, it in no way means unanimity in everything, in every preference. We mentioned this last week. But in everything that we do, desiring to be of one mind, of being unified in the decisions that we make. Families, we can think of this in our own family unit. Spouses, no doubt, you can think of this in relation to your own spouse. Are there times where we think selfishly that I'm doing this for my sake? I'm asking for this. I want this. I will do this for my own benefit and joy. My sake, not my spouse's. We know what our spouse would want. We know where our spouse would want to go on vacation or out to eat or do this afternoon because it's Mother's Day. And the thing that they love to do the most on Mother's Day is dot, dot, dot. Men, you know how to fill in that blank for your wife. You could be married for six days for her and you know how to fill in that blank probably. There's no rule book on your wife because you don't need one. You know what it is that they want. They want to take a walk. They want pictures of their children. They want lunch. They don't want lunch because they want dinner later because they like dinner better because it's cooked at a different... All of these things that you know, you have every opportunity in the next few minutes to be able to make a decision for the unity of your marriage or for the disunity. But when we look at one another, when we as a church, when we as a couple, when we as a family interact with one another not merely on our own, as person to person, but as those who are in Christ, seeing one another as those who have been loved by God, seeing your brother or sister in the row behind you or in a row next to you or across the auditorium from you as one who is in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, seeing one another in the mercy that God has extended to them and redeeming them, we come wrapped to one another in the person and work of the Trinitarian God. We see one another, speak to each other, interact with one another as those who are believers in the gospel, deeply loved by God himself. It is as though you and I are clothed in extra layers or have added protection in our relating with one another. I don't know if you've ever seen these bubble suits that people will sometimes wear, put on to play soccer or to play a game. Sometimes they can run into each other, knock each other down, and nobody gets hurt. Why? Because they've got a four-foot bubble wrapped around them, right? And this bubble keeps them from getting hurt when they run into somebody who's much larger or hurting someone who's much smaller than they are. It looks like a really fun way to play soccer. I don't know how you breathe exactly in these things, but you have all this extra padding. You can run as hard as you want. You can sort of just fall and stumble all over yourself. The only thing that's really exposed is your legs. You have all of this protection, all of this outerwear, all of these things that when somebody comes right at you to harm you, it doesn't even hurt. You just bounce right off the ground and come right back up, ready to go again. Can you imagine... If we viewed one another, not with bubble suits on, but wrapped in the person of the Trinitarian God, in our relationship with God, we view one another in the exact same way that we would like to be viewed as one whose identity primarily is a Christian, one who believes the gospel, 
One who loves Christ, but is still struggling with indwelling sin. One who has the Spirit indwelling us, but still struggles to really want to pray and ask the Spirit to expose what's in our hearts. One who is learning to follow Jesus, but sometimes is doing a pretty bad job. Sometimes a pretty good job, but it's still kind of a mess. We really want to relate with people in a way where we view the work of Christ as that bubble so that we see one another, Lord willing, in the same way that Christ sees you, not in the way that we feel hurt by you or slanted by you, or we think you are thinking of us by the way you looked at us or didn't look at us or talked to us or snubbed us, we think. And sometimes it's almost as though we have barely a layer on and we feel so vulnerable and hurt and pricked by everything. Instead of relating to one another in light of the gospel and all of the glory and protective wrappings that God has put on us as our primary identity, viewing one another. This is why I think when Paul is writing, he puts this if statements at the beginning. He's calling them to be unified together. He's going to get really direct in chapter four, really direct. If you haven't read ahead, do later this afternoon. He calls two ladies out by name. That's not something we normally do in here. Like if we're talking about unity and I start calling names, like you, you ladies, you need to get, get your act together. I don't know that those ladies would attend here after this, like after today, right? We just don't do that. But in the ancient culture, it was actually harmful not to do that because you're sweeping it under the rug because you're not addressing what everybody knows is going on. And so being able to say, as God's people, look at all we've been given in Christ. How can I not relate to this one who has also been given all this in Christ? Imagine this four-foot bubble filled with all of these attributes of who God is and all that he has done for you and interacting with one another in regards to that. When you begin to do that, I feel this deep sense of empathy and care and concern and understanding that all of a sudden says, of course they responded to me like that. Because look at all that is happening in the midst of their life. My response is not to be offended and hurt, but to pray. My response is to move towards them with my bubble of comfort and care and compassion that I have received in Christ towards one who right now is not feeling any of that. Because all the attributes and things in their bubble that they're looking at, they're, they're not reading. Maybe the tears from all of the difficulties right now are clouding their eyes like Raz was mentioning during announcements. I can't see because I've got all of this going on right now. And the last thing that they need is for you to also, one that they didn't mean to hurt, but they can't see you through the tears that they're crying, through the guilt that they're feeling, through the shame that they're expressing right now. What they need from you is not to be offended and pricked by their ignoring you or walking past you in their hurt, but what they desperately need from you is arms that reach out. Well, you can't really reach out in those bubble suits, but arms that reach out and pull them in, move towards them that says, I know you can't right now, but I'm moving towards you because right now in the gospel, I've been, I've been comforted and I want to comfort you. Too often, too quickly, Christians can be, and I think that Paul's writing to a church of people experiencing this, can be so prickly 
towards one another, take offense so quickly. But we of all people have so much to be rooted in, in the gospel, rooted in the depths of God and his character and his compassion and his work that he has done on our behalf. We can think theologically, roughly in line with one another, and feel comfortable. We can think even philosophically about how we do church here and and feel relatively comfortable with one another. But all of a sudden, when somebody says something, does something, responds differently, something else happens that breaks us out of our comfort, it really helps us to stabilize. Where are we rooted in? Tradition, comfort, safety, security, or the gospel? Only one of those is eternal, and only one of those has no end that can be mined. So may we, as God's people, continue to see one another in light of the gospel, the gospel that has shaped and changed you, that you are surrounded in, in the same gospel that I am surrounded in, and that God is working in me. May that continue to breed honest transparency that invites others in, even if all that can be said is tears, that invites people in, that allows them to come close, but that also knows if this person doesn't draw me close, that right now there's a reason for it, and we can pray, and we can love them, and we can comfort them, we can care for them in the ways that we know how, the ways that we've been comforted and cared for and sustained and blessed by God himself. May the strong bond of affection that we have been given in Christ ground us in the truth of the gospel. Would it stabilize our relationships with one another so that we can begin to address differences, whether they're doctrinal differences or interpersonal differences, with patience, humility, and love, so that We care deeply enough for one another in a love that binds our souls together so strongly that differences of perspective cannot pull us apart. That is beautiful. You think of the work of the Trinity and the people, the Trinitarian God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We read about them in the Nicene Creed. And in every way, each and every one, God themselves. And in each and every way, from all of eternity, have had perfect fellowship with one another. What an example to us who are desiring by God's grace to have fellowship with each other here and dwell by the Holy Spirit because of the love that God has shown to us and the encouragement that we have in Christ. This circles back all the way to Paul writing in verse 27 of chapter 1, Here in Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then he pours on these gospel statements for us and says in this way, overwhelmed by these truths, walk in light of the gospel in unity with one another. May God bless us to do just that for his glory and for the furtherance of the gospel. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we are so thankful this morning to be able to even recite these gospel truths, to be able to look at the work of the gospel and to be able to personalize it, because by your Spirit you have come and you have opened our eyes to our sin 
in our need for Jesus. So, Father, this morning we do pray that you would, if there is someone in this room who has never come to faith in Jesus yet, that you would even this morning be opening their eyes to the encouragement that is in Jesus, that although they are a sinner, that Jesus came and gave his life for them. The mercy that is from God, that even though, again, that they have sinned, that God has not left them in their sins, but he has extended mercy. There is still time to receive the gospel, to believe in Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that God and his Holy Spirit is working even now to draw you to faith and repentance. Father, we do pray that you would work to open their eyes. If there is someone here who is not a believer, not a Christian this morning, that you would open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. And that either now or in conversations that follow over lunch or after our service, that they would come to saving faith in Jesus. And they would come to a place where they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus to save them because they know they cannot save themselves. Father, with what joy... We pray that you would grant them this morning. And what joy for us this morning, as Paul's joy was bound up in the church and in their response to the gospel message. Father, may that be what roots our joy as well. We pray that you would give us great joy this morning and this afternoon. Would you again, as we have prayed already, bless our mothers, be with them, encourage them, and give them great joy in the faith of their children, in the faith of their husbands, and in the work that you are doing in and through their lives for your glory and for the furtherance of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.